This is episode 27 of The Great Train Show with Tim Fisher. Today, a deal to keep steam trains running in Western Poland. We meet an inaugural member of the Puffing Billy Preservation Society and the wreck of the old 97. Welcome to The Great Train Show, episode number 27. There is the ultimate business deal for rail buffs in Western Poland. Not yesterday, but today. In contemporary time, you can pay to drive the steam locomotives, which in turn keeps the steam trains running in that neck of the woods. Also, on this program, Puffing Billy is an Aussie icon, and we've dealt with it before. But its future wasn't always secure, and so we're going to examine a new aspect to that famous moment in history when a number of courageous people ensured that Puffing Billy didn't vanish forever. After a six-day learning course, including safety requirements, there's not too many railways that would give you the OK to drive their locomotives hauling actual regular commercial passenger trains. But that's what's happening right now at a small town in western Poland. I might add, it also happens uh, in a different format at that magnificent railway centre Didcot on the Great Western Railway between uh, Paddington, London and uh, Bristol. It's part of a deal brokered by a UK rail enthusiast to keep and help keep steam trains running in Poland. This story comes to us courtesy of the ABC's Moscow foreign correspondent, Scott Bevan. Welcome on board the great train show, Scott. Thanks very much. Glad to be on board, Tim. And why so? Because, in fact, Scott Bevan has been with the foreign correspondent and its excellent anchor, Mark Corcoran, to a place called Poland, a country called Poland, and western part of Poland. What took you there, Scott? Steam took me there. Well, unfortunately, a plane took me there, but what inspired me to go there and for the show was the steam trains. This part of Western Poland, around this little town called Volston. Volston, when you first look at it, looks like a normal, bucolic, rustic little uh, town in Europe, but it is, in fact, steam heaven, steam central for steam buffs right around the world because it is the only place in Europe, perhaps on Earth, where there is the last remaining steam train commuter network, which means that instead of the steam engines being some sort of historical curiosity, they literally huff and puff through people's everyday lives. They're doing practical things like conveying commuters and providing, what, an hourly service? Not quite an hourly. They're interspersed with uh, more contemporary trains, although I say that advisedly, they don't look altogether contemporary either. So it's a mixture of both, but I suspect a lot of people had for the steam trains to go to work to do their commuting because they appear to love it. Like for everybody, it just ignites them to be able to ride on this. And it is, as I say, part of their daily lives there. Now, given the cost and given the footage we saw of you gate-crashing a footplate, how do they make ends meet? Well, it's this unique deal that has been struck between the Polish railways and an English fellow called Howard Jones. Uh, He should be called Casey Jones for what he's done there. But nonetheless, Howard Jones, about 10, 12 years ago, was looking for a change of life, change of country out of England. And he was a steam buff, like so many remembered the, the sound and the smell of steam trains from a very small child. And he found himself in this place called Volston, 
and noticed that there were a few steam trains still running, but they looked like they were on the fast track to history, that they were going to be wiped out like in so many other parts of the world. However, they were still surviving around Volston, uh, had survived the communist era of uh, toppling and the these uh, rusting hulks are still going, just. So he struck a deal. He said, if I get people to come here, steam bus from all over the world, if, and they pay for the privilege, for the privilege of standing on the footplate, will you allow it? And in turn, you can have that money to help keep the trains on the, on the rails. Anyway, 11 years later, people are coming, people are paying. Those trains are still on the rails and they've given uh, a new lease of life, not only to the rail system around there, but also to the towns, to the hubs, and have assured jobs along the rail system as well. So it's been an extraordinary deal struck from one man looking for a change of life, a new lease of life. He in turn has given a new lease of life to a railway system. And a win-win situation in more ways than one to an area which came out of and from behind the wall in fairly depressed circumstance. I guess the next crisis point uh, will be the re- major overhauls and replacement of parts and boilers of the steam locomotives. Is there planning for that? Cost is always a big thing, he said to us. Howard Jones said that, you know, the upkeep of this is, is just enormous. But such is the interest, and it's beyond those paying uh, to ride on the trains, to, to drive the trains. There are people kicking in because they want to see this survive. And he also said that the Polish railways uh, folks are also aware of this enormous asset they have, that 11, 12 years ago, they probably weren't quite aware, this treasure sitting under their noses. They're also aware. So there appears to be, from what Howard Jones says, a concerted and combined effort to ensure that these trains do stay on the rails. But he did say there is that constant, constant worry about upkeep and maintenance and the costs that that uh, involves. We're talking with Scott Bevan, Eastern European ABC correspondent, but based in Moscow with its own magnificent subway metro system and glorious stations. But Scott, does it burn local coal or is it imported coal? Because there's a point to be made that uh, in some ways the more greenhouse-friendly form of locomotion is coal steam-fired because the particles that are not burnt in a piston diesel-fired locomotive do more harm than the purity of the burn in a steam locomotive and the boiler system. So where does the coal come from? Wow, great question. I don't know, <laughs> to be honest. I, I have no idea. It did occur to me at one point, though, Tim, as I was watching this, thinking, wow, this is just wonderful. But in this day and age as well, I bet others are thinking, this is terrible for the environment. This is just terrible. In fact, I stopped a couple of times and I saw a lady hanging out washing. And this is probably bringing back memories for older listeners that uh, used to see steam trains go by and uh, you know try and whip the washing off the line. And I was waiting for this lady to do it, and she didn't do it because there's you know there's that billowing black smoke, and you know that there are particles coming on, raining on down. And I said, this must be terrible for you for your washing. And uh, she lives right beside the rail line. And she said, no, it's wonderful. It's lovely. What's a little bit of, you know, sort of compared to the joy of watching this go racing by? But more than once, as I say, it did occur to me, this is beautiful for the eyes. It's wonderful to have this uh, piece of history still running through our present lives. But I wonder what it's doing to the future for the environment in its own small ways. In fact, the environmental equation... Uh, swings on how far the coal had to be carted before it gets burnt in steam locomotives, real-life steam locomotives. And the environmental equation is not as clear-cut 
as intuitively you might think it uh, might be because of things going up the chimney. And there's some learned scientific papers now favouring steam. And indeed, uh, in South America, there is a swing back to a new form of locomotive called steam electric, where the steam drives turbines rather than pistons to maximise a, a seamlessness of efficiency. But Scott, eventually, wow. everything was risked when they allowed this Australian from Newcastle to have a go. How did you feel? Uh, I felt, at first, I've got to tell you, I felt apprehensive. I, I felt the surge of adrenaline, and I was a little nervous when I climbed into the overalls and put on the cap. But I'd seen others do it during the couple of days we were filming, and I saw the delight on their faces. I saw folks older than me heaving in and uh, helping out there with the coal, throwing the coal into the firebox. And it was, I thought, okay, I can do this physically, but my goodness, what if something goes wrong? I think that was the source of my adrenaline. So I was in charge of the 1717 from a little place called Yaltz to Brocklove, this major centre, and I was driving a TKT 48 number 18, none of which I knew much about. And I knew even less about the controls and levers. I thought it'd be fairly easy, Tim. I thought it'd be a case of, you know, just leisurely winding a few wheels and what have you. Uh Uh-uh. I mean, this is not some historical curiosity. As it got underway, I realised what was in my hands here was an absolute beast. And it was huge work and hard work. But I I wore myself out. It simultaneously saps your energy, but it fires your imagination. It was for only 30 kilometres along this track, with real-life paying passengers behind me, may I add. And 30 kilometres took about an hour, but that hour flew by. I was constantly on the watch. It's not some romantic thing where you're just looking out the window, blowing the whistle and waving at people, although I tried to do that. You are constantly having to do something, which stunned me. There's always something to be done. So it was a terrifying, exhilarating, exciting Uh, hour or so where it made me a five-year-old child again. It reminded me of the steam trains in my home city that I used to see in in the late 60s around an area called Carrington. It took me back to my childhood. It made me feel like a kid and for that I'll never forget it. I am told, Scott Bevan, that there is a split second of absolute disaster where you can even bend the piston rods if on starting the uh, piston is exactly at the halfway point so it doesn't know which way to push forward or back did they explain a little of how you must very carefully ease that regulator open they did they did and i don't know how carefully or smoothly i did things i think it was okay there was one point where we were rolling backwards that wasn't good that not, was in the not good at rolling all backwards. not planned for and uh In fact, at the end, when you wave goodbye, uh, I noticed one other little point, Scott Bevan, that they wouldn't trust you on a dead-end platform. They, uh, uh, in fact, brought the train in on, I think, I observed a through platform so that there was a bit more tolerance if you overshot. (laughs) You are are spot on. And also, may I say, in the cabin, there were two very experienced Polish railway guys who drive these trains most of the time, and they had their hands poised, <laughs> ready to grab, should the uh, incompetent journalist uh, really spill into the area of disaster. So the passengers were safe, as they always are with these uh, interlopers in- onto the footplate, because there are Polish railways uh, people there. But nonetheless, uh, you know, the the chance of disaster was there with me at the helm, and that was very, 
very acute of you to observe that, that it was a long, long track still ahead. They wouldn't uh, trust me to just pull it up uh, right at the end there. So We're talking with Scott Bevan, who was heard to utter something like, thank God you're here, to the Polish railway officials on the footplate, <laughs> just in case uh, things went wrong. But Didcot in uh, the United Kingdom between uh, London and Bristol does something on a more limited scale of allowing outsiders over a one-day course to finally get to drive a steam locomotive and at that place they operate not only standard gauge which Poland is but a little bit of Brunel's Great Western Railway broad gauge of seven foot and a quarter of inch but I wouldn't let Scott Bevan anywhere near something as large uh, as large as that but back in Moscow you use the train quite a bit? Oh all the time in fact uh, it is the only thing to use as far as I'm concerned you know there are big wide roads that have been here for many, many, many years. Unfortunately, the economic growth has meant that uh, the number of cars on the roads has even managed to clog up these wide, beautiful boulevards that uh, come into Moscow. So the best thing to do is to head underground, literally, to uh, the metro system. If you do come to Moscow, as you know, Tim, because you've been here, one of the, the true visual joys is a metro station. They're not some dark, dank uh, underground station. And I think Stalin actually called them this, uh, Stalin, who instigated a lot of these, he called them palaces of the people. Chandeliers as well. Chandeliers, beautiful mosaics, memorials, war memorials, the most uh, stunning war memorials, memorials to the agricultural, you know, the communal agricultural effort. They are more than train stations. They're these wonderful pieces of history underground. And best of all, a train comes in, usually comes in on time, and you get to where you need to, which is... a Far more than I can say if you uh, risk the four wheels of your car up on the uh, on the surface on the road. By the way, can I thank you? Because your knowledge of trains opened my brain to the fact that one of my favourite writers, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, passed through my hometown of Newcastle. And I was never aware of that. I knew he'd been to Newcastle because of that less than flattering thing he said about it, that it's one long street with a cemetery at one end with no bodies in it and a gentleman's club at the other with no gentleman in it. But I wasn't aware how he got there or why. So, And you opened my uh, my eyes it's to It's a that. great story. And, of course, there's a famous letter he signed in thanks to the dentist, which is held uh, on the archives in Newcastle. I held it for a year and they came and got it off me. It's actually a very great iconic uh, letter which Mark Twain wrote. Why is Mark Twain famous? He changed trains here at Albury-Wodonga. Judged just this year again on the front page of a Time magazine as one of the top ten authors in the world ever. And maybe one day we will make a little more of Mark Twain's visit to Australia when he caught 16 trains down under. Can I thank you, Scott Bevan? Good on you, Tim. It was wonderful chatting with you. Take care. Bye. Thanks, mate. We thank, in fact, both Scott Bevan and Mark Cochran, who does a sterling job on Foreign Correspondent. And you can actually watch Scott's story on the Foreign Correspondent website. To do this, go to abc.net.au forward slash foreign, and then you'll see a search engine square come up on the screen, and you put into that search engine square Poland Trains. Puffing Billy Railway is one of Australia's premier railway tourist attractions and it deserves some detailed attention. But its future wasn't always guaranteed. In 1955, a preservation society was formed to make sure it did not vanish forever. A member of that society, from the very beginning, was Peter Ralph, who has enjoyed a life inspired by rail 
and not only was he inaugural member, he's travelled to many countries around the world. So good morning to you, Peter Ralph. Oh, good morning, Tim. And perhaps, Peter, to uh, establish your credentials, we should just dwell on one or two of those countries you've been to. Yes. You're actually a member also and have been to several times the Darjeeling Himalayan Railway. That is correct, Tim. My first visit was with my son, who was only 11 years of age, back in 1974. It was an Australian railway enthusiast excursion of about 15 days, and the Darjeeling Himalayan Railway was a major highlight. You would advise that if, of course, going there, you would also make a point of going to the Gum Railway Museum. Yes. But on one of your trips... Can you tell us, did you come by train from Calcutta to Siliguri? Can you tell us a little bit about how you might go there by rail rather than by plane? That's true. That's the, that's the regular route. We'd been over the western part of India and we'd come over on the metre gauge line to Siliguri and joined the train, which used to originate from Siliguri to Darjeeling. But, of course, it's new, brought, been brought back to the broad gauge line now, New Japagari. So the last first trip was from Siliguri to Darjeeling in 74, on the, off the metre gauge, and from Patna, where we had to cross the Ganges, and I think a steam paddle steamer at the time, and join the metre gauge there. But I went back in 2001, and we did the Uti line as well, the Rack and Pinion Railway, between Metapalium and Kanur and Uti Kaman, and we also did the Matherin Railway down in Rail. But the Darjeeling Himalaya Railway had a specific interest for me because uh, it was two-foot gauge and it was threatened with closure, as you probably well know, back in the late 90s. And after a, a pressure group, which uh, Rajas Tendiv came and visited Australia to get expressions of interest from rail enthusiasts, and as a result of a groundswell of people, not only from Australia but around the world, it received World Heritage Status by UNESCO in 1999. That was a big breakthrough, and uh, we're talking with uh, Peter Ralph, and you actually managed to squeeze in a trip to Indonesia, a narrow-gauge rail system. Uh, did you make it to Yogyakarta or Bogor? Both places, yes. Indonesia was a fascinating place uh, in those days because there were several railway systems there that are now defunct and closed. But Sumatra was an interesting place. We travel on the West Sumatran Railway, 265km system, which features 10 separate rail sections, to totalling 40 kilometres in length and reaching grades of 1 in 10. And they have a fleet of 13 E10O-10-O rack locomotives, which operate on the Rickenbach system in the Padang, Panjang, Bukatinghi, the Saluk line. So that was a fascinating experience. And in Java, we had an excursion train hauled by a C-50 class from Jakarta to Jogjakarta. and was at Malay 26620 between Silagenka and Sabatu, a section of the Bandung Jogjakarta main line. It was very, very fascinating. They had them immaculately restored, by the way. The brass was shining. And a very busy uh, main line. And, of course, the station, a touch of the Dutch colonial architecture, I remember. We're talking with Peter Ralph, who, in fact, was just a handful of people that gave the leadership that uh, has ensured that the Puffing Billy is bigger and better and looking good for the future in uh, 2008. What was... The main catalyst, Peter, in your judgment for um, the passion and the number of supporters growing rapidly enough to rescue the Puffing Billy? Well, it occurred through the, uh, really, the uh, closure of the line by the Victorian Railways after the landslide had occurred between Menzies Creek and Selby. 
there's a landslip there, and that was sufficient justification for the Victorian Railways at the time to close the line because it was make heavy losses. However, on the 10th of December 1954, a leading Melbourne newspaper, The Sun News Pictorial, ran a number of uh, Young Sun specials <coughs> between the one and only open sectional line between Ferntree Gully and Belgrave to give children and supporters the opportunity to say a final farewell to Puffing Billy. The trains were a huge success and they led to a groundswell of support. And that was when the, the Puffing Billy Preservation Society was formed and the Victorian Railways continued to run trains under the auspices of a guarantee from the society. So that was the start of it all, and I was tapped on the shoulder by a, a Mr Phil Avard, a former committee man and vice-president and vice-secretary of the Puffing Billy Preservation Society and vice-chairman of the board. And those days he said, would you care to come up for a weekend and do some track work? We've got to relay the Belgrave yard because we've got to make way for a new terminus because the electrification from Melbourne to Ferntree Gully was being extended to Belgrave, so we're Puffing Billy Station occupy it to be moved. So I was up there over the weekend. We got picked up. In fact, uh, I didn't have a car in those days, but uh, Roy Lyons, a close friend to Phil Avard, picked Phil up in Carnegie and picked me up in East Melbourne, and we went up there each weekend belting uh, dog spikes and sleepers in that place to relay the yard. And that was the, really the start of really the work that commenced, and it was between 58 and 62 we got the first section of the line open to Menzies Creek and subsequently Emerald and, and Lakeside and then finally Gembrook in 1998. Peter, I worked on one Sunday, I remember, with Joseph Guffrey uh, as a ganger uh, on one of your working bees. It was a huge effort. I remember looking at the landslip and thinking, will the, the line ever get across it? But it did, and eventually right through uh, Emerald to Gembrook. A total distance now uh, from Belgrave to Gembrook. 15 of, miles. Which many would regard as being very close to the optimum yes. for uh, a rail heritage operation. You can be bankrupting yourself if you take it a great deal further. The aspect, though, which perhaps is not well known to people, the ownership technically resides, I think, in the Emerald uh, or Dandenong's Tourist Board? Emerald's Tourist Railway Board, ETRB. And they have the ownership of the rolling stock. And the society are the volunteers, virtually, that do all the ticket collecting with the guards, the conductors on the train, etc., etc., and the track work, of course. Well, the ETRB replaced the Victorian Railways, in effect, as far as ownership of the infrastructure. And you confirmed, Peter Ralph, that it was about the second in the whole wide world of rail preservation springing into life after the Festiniog in Wales. That is correct. We were the first in Australia and the second in the world. Trailblazers, and we're really grateful for your time. One final point to finish with, Tim. I, I congratulate you because... After the restoration of uh, G42, that was our Bayer Peacock locomotive that uh, it took 17 years of fundraising. I was uh, involved heavily with uh, running fundraising initiatives to restore that locomotive, and of course that's been running now since 2004. And we had the pleasure of having the Honourable Tim Fisher flag that locomotive through a banner at Nobelius. I remember that. Yeah. I remember the extension to Gembrook when I went there as Deputy Prime Minister yeah. and helped with the opening of uh, that, uh, so I guess I have form... I've uh, even uh, conducted trade negotiations in the enclosed carriage with a delegation uh, from the Middle East. It was like a blast out of the Lawrence of Arabia uh, <laughs> film of yesteryear. But Peter Ralph, I salute your work. I salute the work of your colleagues, many of them, too many to name. Can I thank you, Peter Ralph, for your contribution to the Great Train Show today? Thank you very much, Tim.
Somewhat a mournful sting introduces The Wreck of the Old 97. It's a song that's been covered many times. It tells the story of a southern train that derailed in Virginia in 1903. It said the train was never late, but on this occasion it was running well behind schedule. So the driver was told to increase the speed to gain time. Always a risky adventure. As a result, the train derailed. The song has been covered by many artists, including The Seekers, Woody Guffrey, Boxcar Willie and Johnny Cash. Today we bring you this version by Johnny Mercer. They give him his orders at Monroe, Virginia, and Steve, you're way behind time. This is not 38, but it's old 97. You must put her in dispenser on time. He turned and said to his black greasy fireman, shovel on some more coal. And when we cross that white old mountain, you can watch old 97 roll. It's a mighty rough road from Lynchburg to Danville And Lima's on a three-mile grade It was on this grade when he lost his air brakes And you see what a job he made He was going down a grade making 90 miles an hour And his whistle broke into a scream He was found in a wreck with his hand on the throttle and was scalded to death by steam. Take warning from this time on and learn. Never speak harsh words to your true loving husband. He may leave you and never return. Never speak harsh words to your true loving husband. He may leave you and never return. Well, that was Johnny Mercer and the wreck of the old 97 never to return. Well, it just demonstrates uh, the diversity of the Great Train Show. But we'd like your feedback, whether you'd like a bit more chopping and changing and music and all. Uh, just let us know um, a bit more of this or a bit more of that, past, present and future, which we'll be concentrating on as we move forward. Send your email via www.abc.net.au forward slash local, forward slash features, forward slash great train show and follow the prompts and away you'll go. I might add that looking back but looking forward on the 11th and 12th of October 2008, Witchy Proof in Victoria will celebrate up 125 years of rail. 
including uh, a steam train ride from Melbourne, Southern Cross Station, to Witchy Proof, King of the Mountain, to Aphalon, and 101 other community events as people reunite with what helped open up and develop Witchy Proof all those years ago. That's it for episode 27 of The Great Train Show. Till next time, I'm Tim Fisher. Chattanooga, Chattanooga. Chattanooga, Won't you me home?